Uh, tonight I wanted to um, talk about loving kindness in a general way and um, just mention at the beginning of the talk different ways that we can uh, talk about loving kindness. Tonight I want to emphasize um, what loving kindness is and um, ways in which we lose a sense of separate self through interconnectedness. I wanted to talk about spiritual friendship. Um, the whole way that loving kindness is a form of protection will be within the talk, but that's also something I might not have the time to cover tonight. But I wanted to just add that in, that uh, loving kindness is also a form of great protection. So in terms of... Uh, attempting to define what loving-kindness is. Uh, When we do the actual practice itself, it's just a very pure well-wishing. And it's if we have heard the word blessing or understand something about what a blessing is, that's the kind of sense of what it is. It's like giving ourselves a blessing, giving another a blessing. Um... In its deeper meaning, when we use the word loving-kindness, it means that there is understanding within the love. So when we hear the word metta, um, you know, this doesn't mean that the kind of love that often has attachment in it, or nostalgia, or sentimentality. There's really... um, very deep understanding with this kind of love. And the reason for that is that it's meant to be unconditional. So it's love beyond conditions. It doesn't mean that conditional love is wrong. It just means that this specific kind of love that we're cultivating is unconditional. When we do the practice of loving-kindness, we often start to see ways in which uh, what we think our love is uh, tends to be conditional. And that's a good thing. It's good to see when um, there are ways in which our love has aspects of neediness or attachment with it, rather than that just this pure well-wishing. And one of the things that I found uh, for myself, but also with uh, teaching this over the years, is that we tend to have a lot of ideas of perfection about ourselves and a lot of ideals of perfection about ourselves and others. So conditional love is how we think we should be or how we want to be or how we think others should be or how we think, you know, that that we want others to be. You know, you can just see how much that's operating in our relationship with ourselves or others. You know, it it just, um, just to take a silent day of meditation, or even 15 minutes of silent meditation, we really start to see how much judgment we have about ourselves and others. You know, so that it's it's not that we're not meant to see that. It's really meant to be that we start to see that so that we can develop a love of ourselves and others in spite of this. That we don't have to fall prey to these judgments or ideas of perfection. So again, loving kindness isn't, you know, a self-centered attachment or a self-centered nostalgia or sentimentality. And the opposite of loving-kindness, of course, is anger. And we know that we feel the most separate and disconnected often when we're the most angry. You know, and, and we know how painful that is. And again, I'm not saying that it, the experience of anger at all isn't something we work with, and, and it's acceptable, and it can be important information. It's just in describing loving-kindness, it's, it's, it's loving-kindness isn't the experience of anger, of loving-kindness. When we feel loving-kindness, we feel very connected. A deep experience of loving-kindness is feeling completely interconnected with all beings. 
there are two ways that we can describe the truth. There's a great uh, teacher that um, is dead now, but his name was Sri Nizargadatta Maharaj, and he described two ways of um, perceiving the truth. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And the loving-kindness practice is really a lot about developing this understanding that love tells me I'm everything. And when we hit a barrier between ourself and ourself, or we hit a barrier between ourself and another, it also requires wisdom. You know, so those practices of mindfulness and loving-kindness interweave um, and I'll uh, refer to that a lot during this um, talk, and also we'll all refer to it during this retreat. It's not that um, the two practices of, of Vipassana or mindfulness practice or loving-kindness can be kept separate. They start to interweave because we need loving, we need the wisdom practice to help us um, overcome our resistances to imperfection. For those of you who are new to this practice, it, I think it's really helpful to just surrender to the form and to learn it as fully as you can. And then when you go to interviews, to describe what's happening in your practice so that we can help you um, find ways of refining that to, to learn what works for you in the practice. If you have done this practice before, feel, please feel permission to... <clears throat> Explore what works for you and strengthen and deepen that. And again, to use the interviews as a time to um, get feedback on that. So that when we start to teach this practice, you know, for people that are learning, you have to start somewhere. And uh, when I first learned it with Sayadaw Upandita, a teacher of mine from Burma, he told me it was very simple instruction. He just said, do yourself for 10 or 15 minutes until you really feel it for yourself. And then for the rest of the sitting, do uh, send metta to a benefactor. And then during the walking, when you're eating, when you're brushing your teeth, you send the metta to a benefactor. Um, and when he gave me that instruction as I was bowing and leaving the interview, you know, when he said, just do yourself for 10 or 15 minutes until you can really feel it fully for yourself... I was thinking, oh no. You know, because that was myself. I knew it was going to be the greatest challenge. And that w- the instruction was so much assuming that that would be easy. You know, so, so for some people, when they, do, you know, start this practice, um, it's really easy to do oneself. And that instruction is really fairly um, useful and helpful. And for some people, that, that uh, instruction of starting one, with oneself um, can be difficult. But it, I learned how to work with it. And it, you know, basically what I learned in doing this practice, and when I first did it, it was like two months, and the next year I did two months. It was really seeing how all the instruction is meant to do is to help us find what's easiest for us to connect with. It's to find some way to break the barrier between ourself and something, to feel that connection, to feel the interconnectedness. So when I was starting it, you know, it just felt like um, I didn't understand that when I was first practicing it. But eventually, you know, I had, I, it was very humbling for me to see how difficult it was to send to myself. And I had to be very creative in my practice to kind of um, navigate through the territory of um, a lot of self-hatred and fear. The instruction generally with concentration practice is um, with the metta to find something that's the easiest for us. So... um, Eventually, I started with a benefactor, 
and that became too difficult as well. So my first week of the practice was very difficult because not only was the, myself difficult, but then the benefactor <laughs> got too difficult. And it was just like, again, I was like, wow. you know. So then I shifted to a dear friend, and that worked for me somewhat. And then, you know, after a few, you know, hours of that, I started to hit too much difficulty again. And I had brought this little stuffed animal with me to this retreat. Um, And this is not traditional, uh, to send loving kindness to a stuffed animal. Um, But at some point, you know, I, I was trying everything. I was trying rocks, trees, you know. Anything breathing, I thought you know better to do a breathing being than resort to a stuffed animal, right? You know, but eventually I had to face that that was where I had to start in relationship to myself. And again, it was so humbling. But in the West, it's kind of the norm. You know, it's it's often very difficult for us to wish ourselves well. Not maybe to that extreme, um, but it it is often the difficult category or we really have to kind of do ourselves a bit and then move to something easy, and then maybe we move back to ourselves a bit. But generally speaking, I find that um, culturally, this is not such an easy practice. And if it is easy for you, enjoy it. And if you have a benefactor that's working for you, enjoy it. If you can't find a connection with the person you started, we joke about auditioning people. You know, audition people. Try a few, and if they shift, if they're more of a dear friend category, great. So again, you know, you can just imagine, classically or traditionally, the idea is that that being is an elder. But culturally, again, usually for us, it's often a child. Or a a dear friend of mine in Honolulu really taught me about this. She taught me she couldn't find a human being, um, but her cat really worked for her. And she felt so guilty because she couldn't feel it for her husband. She couldn't feel it for her children. You know, and I'm like, try a cat. You know, it's like, and she just didn't want to hear that the cat, her cat was her benefactor. But think about it for us, you know. uh, Think about how, you know, if you had a dog that you really liked in your lifetime or a cat or just some, a fish, you know, a, a something, a mouse, you know. <laughs> just think about some being that wasn't human. Usually our heart just kind of goes, oh. And that, oh, is the connection. And that, oh, is what you're looking for in terms of not all day, but initially kind of to make some kind of connection. And, you know, what I learned to do in my own practice is I'd start with my stuffed animal until I went, I went oh, i do myself for a while and then shift to the benefactor. That would work for me. And I can encourage you, like over time I started to really again be creative. So sometimes when I wouldn't feel anything, I would imagine the person sitting next to me or in front of me. You know, these are really simple things, but anything that you can do to start helping you connect. It's like when I would do walking meditation, Sometimes I just get out walking and I think, what am I going to do to keep this going, you know? It's just so tedious uh, and can get so dry. And I just started discovering simple things to do. So I would just imagine the person I was wishing well at the other side of where I was walking. And I'd walk to that person sending the metta. It was great for a while. You know, you'll you'll come up with different things. And then I started putting this friend in different outfits. Like, really, it was like, you know, just something to keep it interesting. But it actually kept me more interested. Try it. You know, it just, it just, this might not work for you if you're not into, you know, costumes. <laughs> but I actually, to tell you the truth, what I would imagine was this person, I would have a memory of this person happy in something this person was wearing, basically. And that just helped me remember that feeling. If you're not as visual, what you do is try to remember this person sometimes when they were happy as a feeling. So it does require that creativity to recall something to make the connection. And if you feel really disconnected and you're sitting, you know, you start to sit or walk really 
do a little mindfulness practice. Land in your body. Notice the, the feeling of your feet on the earth. Open up, look around. Take a few deep breaths. And then see if you can really get the feeling essence of this other being or the image. Walk with them. You can walk next, have them next to you walking. You know, these are all creative ways to work with it. And when you're doing yourself, it's again, it's, um, you know, what I ended up doing my first long metta retreat is I'd, I would do myself also at the beginning of the walking periods. So myself, 10, 15, 20 minutes walking, and then the rest the benefactor, but who turned out to be the dear friend. Now, if you're new and haven't heard about this, my teacher had me do this for a month. I never moved on to anything else. So that's one style where you just stay with one being besides yourself and you really deepen that connection and deepen that connection. On this long a retreat, we tend to do that for a day or two, shift to dear friend and add in. For some people, that'll be more helpful to have more to do. But for other people, they'll stay with themselves the whole retreat. So it's just to give you that sense of some people do not connect with the kind of more personal categories. Some people, that's all they connect with. They don't connect with all beings, all females, all, you know, all, all females to the Northwest. You know, some people just don't make that connection. You know, it's a little abstract. Other people get to all beings and they're just swooning. You know, it's just that's where they connect. You know, so again, it's also learning um, the way... I really love the way Steve introduced the metta yesterday and this morning where that original teaching of the Buddha is just to drop in. Very simple. That That's the experience of metta, where you just drop into the heart and one realizes that your heart is the heart of the world. And if you drop into your own heart, there is no giver and receiver, and there's just this dropping in and then extending or permeating. And I really feel like the categories of people and the the phrases are really helpful because we can't always have the amount of energy and clarity to just drop in like that. Sometimes we will. And we won't need the phrases, and we'll just drop into that purity of heart without having to do much. Other times we really need the support of the phrases and the different people or beings that we use. Originally, um, when we do this practice, the encouragement is to really work with beings that a lot of stuff isn't coming up with so that you can develop the concentration and the purity of the concentration. That doesn't mean that we won't get to uh, neutral people or difficult people, Um, but I found over time, again, that it was so wonderful to be doing a practice that the whole means of the practice was the ends, you know, so that that ease and strengthening of what is easy is a form of loving-kindness. And it isn't, um, culturally, we tend to think if it isn't overly hard, if we're not doing what's difficult, that it's not going to really mean much. But you'll, uh, you'll actually find, I think, if you are new to it, that it's hard enough <laughs> just to do what's easy and to really try to trust that that strengthening of what is easy helps us to break the barriers with what is difficult later in the retreat and in our life. If you find, again, that um, the teaching with the metta practice, with the concentration, is really to keep going with the phrases, with the uh, feeling essence of the person. Um, And if something comes up, like a strong desire, or knee pain, or boredom, the initial instruction is to ignore it and to see if you can keep the loving-kindness going. And if it kind of comes up again, you try to ignore it, keep it going. If it gets too hard, you shift to, like if you're doing benefactor, you shift to yourself. 
if you do yourself and that happens, you shift to benefactor. And then if, if you try that and that, you know, you're just finding it too hard, then you, then you shift to something like the breath. You still don't work with what is actually coming up and you just kind of get some space, body, sound. You can just be with what's happening. And then if it's still coming up, then you're, then you're mindful of it. You let it come and go by itself. You just go back to some mindfulness practice and then when you're ready, you, sh- you, t- you start in again with the phrases, the I- image, yourself. Um, so that's, w- that's the kind of classical way to do the practice. Um, what we've also discovered in doing this practice is that there is a sort of middle ground there where if you keep the meta phrases going or you're working with um, just the feeling essence and the feeling of metta, um, and say boredom arises, you can, you can just wish the boredom well. Or if you feel that the heart is really numb or tight, you would just start to try to wish that well, that part of yourself well. And I have found that a really helpful way to do the loving-kindness practice. And we're not trying to rip our petals open in a mental practice, what we're trying to do is learn to um, be okay and accepting of whatever's happening. And so we're not trying to get rid of sleepiness, we're not trying to get rid of the boredom, but, but there is a way that you can say you're doing the benefactor and some of this stuff comes up. Just shift to yourself, wish, your sh- wish yourself well, and then if it feels like the stuff is still coming up, see if you can make space for wishing these parts of yourself well. And if you can do that, it really also helps deepen, you know, how we are with just how things are. Accepting imperfection. Letting things be as they are. It's all a form of acceptance and loving kindness. So we're meant to stay with what is relatively easy a lot. Um, and the benefactor category, I think it's so wonderful to recognize and acknowledge. Um, the Buddha taught that there are two um, rare and special types of human beings, or rare and precious types of human beings, one who shows kindness, and one who receives and is grateful for that kindness. And that, like, when you start to really get what this category is about and why that's considered the easiest, it's kind of mind-boggling how beautiful this practice is. Uh, So that quality of rare and precious type of human being, it's really a spiritual friend. And what we're doing in this practice is learning how to be a spiritual friend for ourselves and a spiritual friend for others. You know, and all it means is that there was somebody in our life who took the time to be interested in us. Or we took the time to be interested in them. And this, this is a lifeline on the planet. It's really the only thing that makes life worth living. You know, it's like it's what gives life meaning. Uh, if you recall anyone in your childhood or in your adult life, you know, and you just see what happens in your heart when you remember them, you know, it's, it's <laughs> what makes it possible to be human. And, you know, and the teachings are that, you know, the beings in the hell realms, if you believe that, the only thing that helps beings out of the hell realms is loving-kindness. We know when we go into our own black holes that the only thing that helps us out is loving-kindness, is someone reaching out to us. You know, so, so it's pretty... Um, I find this practice so um, reflective of this deep understanding of how important this category is. And one of the ways that the... Um, Buddha described the experience of loving-kindness 
is the moment a mother cow gives birth to a newborn calf and makes contact, you know, makes the connection with that newborn. And, you know, it's the same father, cow, newborn. But it's really the imagery the Buddha used was an animal and a cow, baby cow, calf. And what I would encourage you to do is really investigate what the giver and what the receiver is within you. It's like we all have the mother cow, we all have the mother calf in us. And it's really the bringing together of these two parts of ourselves that makes us whole. You know, so what is it? You know, when you're doing loving kindness, who's giving to who? You know, and are you aware of receiving anything from yourself? And what is that self that's giving love to what? You know, it's really amazing when you start asking these questions. You know, so this is, this is not something that you just get overnight. It really takes time to really be able to receive love from yourself. And often we, you know, as humans, because we are not born perfect, we tend to either have the mother cow really developed or the baby calf. You know, we all have different aspects of ourselves more developed, but having them both developed is rare. And being able to relate to both of those aspects of another being are rare. You know, so this is what you're doing when you're doing yourself, is really developing the mother cow and baby calf. And when you shift to the benefactor, it's really learning how to be the mother cow for another baby calf. You know, so that's learning how to get in touch with your inner goodness. You know, we are all born with inner goodness. And getting in touch with the feeling essence of a being is really getting into that core, just essence of a being. And it feels so good when we make the connection. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go hang out with a chipmunk for a while. Just just get in touch with that feeling essence of a being that's so innocent in a way, you know, just just get in touch with some being out there, a butterfly, or try to remember, again, a dog or a cat or something in your life. Or if you have a connection with a child, or did, then if you can get that connection, then shift to yourself. If it's a rock, go for it. If it's a stuffed animal, go for it. It doesn't have to be a breathing being. What matters is that something in the heart gets touched. And in that way, we allow the universe to touch us, which is love. I had a um, professor when I was in college that, it's a longer story, Um, I really love nature, and in a way, Mother Earth was my benefactor and lifeline and teacher. Um, and this professor was a naturalist, and you know, this is long ago, one of the first great environmental activists in the country. Um, and he was, he was a Quaker and really loved life and loved nature. He was like being with an elf. And I was, saw him outside one day with a class at a tree that I really liked. It was called a weeping beech, a beautiful tree. And he was pruning it with this whole class. And I thought he was hurting the tree. So I ran over and I started yelling at him for hurting the tree. Um, and he started to explain to me that he wasn't hurting the tree. He was actually helping it. But there was something in his eyes that just, he caught, he saw my love of nature. And he also saw that I didn't understand a lot of nature in the way that could be helpful. And he kind of captured me through his love of nature. And that's how I am with a lot of (laughs) my life in terms of learning. If somebody really loves what they teach, I I like it. I get involved. If they don't, I don't learn as much. Um, And I took tons of classes with him, just was so wonderful to have a connection with him. And when I left school, um, you know, and there were a lot of things that 
are hard to describe, but I, I felt so worthless when I met him. And I, I used to do little drawings, but I used to just rip them up. And um, one drawing I finally gave to him, but I, I folded it all up and kind of... <laughs> I mean, I treated it like it was no good. I folded it all up, put it under his door once. Um, and he actually uh, framed it for me and gave it back. You know, that's an amazing being that can can see how much I needed that um, to, to be appreciated in that way. So when I was going to leave school, he gave me a, a sketchbook. And inside it he wrote, um, I flow through you to others and dance along the way. Um, there was such a sense in him of interconnectedness and his love not being personal in the way that he held on to anything that he knew or loved. And the best thing I think I learned from him was that he um, he wanted us to be better than him. In every way, he wanted us to surpass him in all ways. He wanted us to surpass him in love. He wanted us to surpass him in knowledge. He wanted us to surpass him in what we did in the world. Um, and that is such a gift to be with somebody who, who doesn't need you to be less than or equal to. So he was one of my first great spiritual friends. Mm. So a spiritual friend is meant to help us renew our spirits, whether it's with ourself, with ourself, or um, ourself and another being. And we all have a great need to be seen, to be valued, to be understood. And again, that's what gives us the deepest sense of well-being and courage. I think of uh, the Buddha when he um, understood completely, you know, that full realization, full enlightenment. And when that happened and he really felt that, you know, this is eons of lifetimes of, of development spiritually, just, it's unimaginable to us in a way. Um, but to, to get a sense of him having that complete realization and really getting that done is what had to be done. And when that happened, he touched the earth. He touched Mother Earth as his witness, as his benefactor. You know, that's the imagery, mother cow, you know, mother earth. You know, it's like we're, we're born dependent. We need the benefactor, you know, and to be able to um, let go of control enough to receive life means that we're really able to be touched. We connect. This is what we're doing here in this practice. This is a quotation from um, Hafiz. It's called Tripping Over Joy. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made some, such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender, whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. So the first day of a retreat, you kind of get that you're still trying to make a few serious <laughs> moves. <yeah. laughs> but don't worry. <laughs> a couple more days and there'll be more surrender. 
for those of you who know Johnny Depp as a great actor, um, I read recently that uh, when his daughter was born, he said that he experienced his first selfless moment. Pretty amazing, huh? To go through that long, but to really get it at that point in time. You know, that's, that's what the Buddha was teaching, that experience of well-wishing. Knowing that when we're wishing someone well or ourselves well, we know that that doesn't mean we can control the appearance of pain and pleasure. And that's what's so hard. It's not that when we say, may I be happy or may you be safe and protected, that, that, that means that we understand that we can't control. It means that we wish it. That's the purity. And that, you know, that will just deepen and deepen as you do this practice. Sometimes you'll say the word, may you be safe and protected, and it will be meaningless because there's not enough energy. It's okay. You know, there's something very different when you say, may you be safe and protected, and when you're doing your normal chatter. Yeah? It's a very different thing. Even if it feels like you might as well have been saying, there's a car going down the road, there's a car going down the road, there's a car going down the road. There is something different by saying, may you be safe and protected, may you be happy and peaceful. It might feel really dry, but see if you can keep it going. And sometimes there'll be enough energy and concentration where you really mean it. And there'll be other times where it's, you're so le- deeply immersed in it that you understand so deeply what you're wishing. It's hard to wish well knowing that we can't control the results of the wish. That's why it's hard. You know, when you have children and they're growing up, it's hard to see that they have to face the vicissitudes of life but you still wish them well. And you're trying to get in touch with that newborn in yourself or child in yourself and others and wish them well. When I first started to do the phrases, um, there was this real cynical part of me. You know, it was hard of, hard to do this for myself, so <laughs> I hope you can realize that. I would say, you know, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. May I be happy and peaceful. Like, my voice would actually go down, you know, in my head. And by the time I got to strong and healthy of body, you know, I was born dead, you know, and I've had a lot of, you know, hard physical karma. I'd get to strong and... This, you know, strong and healthy body, and this voice would go, yeah, right, you know. <laughs> you know, it was just like, really, just this constant, you know, sure. But I had to stick with it. And eventually, I could kind of say the phrases, I can assure you, if you keep going with it, that the understanding deepens, and the metta comes in in spite of that. My hardest one was, may I be, um, may I take care of myself happily in this world? I would be like, come on, Michelle, you know, get over it. You know, just be like, enough already. You know, so I'd have to drop that phrase. You know, so it could be that there are phrases that just don't, are too hard. You don't have to do them. I have a student that just has done one phrase for many years, and she was at a retreat a metta retreat, and she was actually able to do two, like another one, without that real harsh cynicism. And it was, she almost, she said she almost fell off her zafu. It was just such a surprise that, that by sticking with it, it just opened up. Sometimes it takes a certain kind of effort to do this practice that, um, You know, it's a little bit different than if you haven't done it, if you've done a lot of mindfulness or Vipassana practice. The mindfulness, it's kind of like you have to crank it up a bit, like cranking up a Model T Ford, you know, there's that crank on it. Um, Try to have patience with that. There is a feeling of doing more in this practice than the non-doing 
Uh, there's more feeling of non-doing in the mindfulness practice. And, and it just takes time to get it going. And, you know, sometimes it'll feel stronger or weaker. Uh, um, I like Calvin and Hobbes a lot. And I um, wanted to share just a small cartoon. Uh, Calvin's a little boy, if you don't know this cartoon. And Hobbes is his a stuffed animal, a tiger. So Calvin is, t- is walking with Hobbes and having a conversation. Calvin says, In the future, everything will be effortless. Computers will take care of every task. We'll just point to what we want done and click. We'll never need to leave the climate-controlled comfort of our homes. No nuisance, no wasted time, no annoying human interaction. And Hobbes says, no life. And, And Calvin says, life is too inconvenient. You know, it would be nice if we could just click and do this practice, you know, and everything would be... All right. You know, so life, life is all of it. Life is everything that happened today. And the idea is that you learn to wish yourself well through all of it. And if you can't do that perfectly yet, that's why you're here. And it can feel inconvenient. You know, life gets in the way. We get sleepy, heaven forbid. What's wrong with us? So it takes a certain kind of um, relaxation and steadiness to do this practice. Um, And I would just ask you to kind of give it time, kind of lean back in time and do the best you can and then kind of relax into it, do the best you can, relax into it, and you'll find your way. When I grew up um, in my family system, there was a lot of swearing. And my father got to swear the most. And no one else could swear in front of him, but we all swore when he wasn't around. So that was sort of normal. Um, and when my father swore, he was really great at it. You know, like, and he did it a lot. He was explosive. And so I grew up with that being normal, you know. And my niece, um, one of my nieces, um, didn't want her children to grow up with that swearing as being normal, which is, of course, totally understandable, right? You know, and um, so when I'm around her children, you know, I, when they get frustrated, my little great niece will say, "Oh, for Pete's sake!" You know, and now she's learned to say, "Oh, crud!" You know, and it's so cute. You know, it's just like, and her older brother is nine, she's five, and they both have learned how to say, you know how we are when we get frustrated. You know, there's some way that it kind of feels good, right, to say, you know. And so they're learning to say, oh, for Pete's sake, and oh, crud, or darn, you know. You know, but the way I grew up when I was frustrated was that those don't work. You know, you have to say something stronger. Um um, so I won't tell the longer version of this story. I'll try to tell the shorter version. So um, her older brother, um, mostly the only thing he really likes to do kind of in his spare time is to play video games. And his his sister, uh, Brenna, I, I find tons of things to do. We just play and play and play and play and... It's easy. It's like she's a soulmate. You know, we have a great time. But her brother gets jealous, and I'm really trying to find ways to connect with him. But really, I had to surrender, you know, video games. But I can't even set a digital clock. I really can't. You know, so a video game is sort of way beyond me or my frustration level, right? So they have this game with those 
cars that go fast. I don't know if you know. I mean, I don't even know what's really happening in these games yet. Um, and you have this little station. And um, my five-year-old niece was trying to tell me how to play, but they can't get that an adult doesn't understand, right? They grew up with it. They can't get that, like, I can't get it. So Brenna will say, you do this, 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 and this, and, you know, and then Owen will say, you do this, this, and I don't, I really don't get it. So the first game we played, I, was, I wasn't even following the right thing, like, if you know about them, like there's different squares on the set and each one is a, is a different car that you have your station and you're, you're, you're getting one to go. But I, was, I thought I was getting this other one to go. <laughs> the whole game. Like it was incredible. You know, so, okay, a couple games go by, I'm getting really frustrated and I finally like find my right car and it's constantly going backwards, and it's like, I'm, I can't turn it around, and I'm asking for help, and they won't help me. And finally I'm going, oh, and, and the older brother goes, Andy Michelle. And he goes, were you going to say the word shit? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I, I was going to say shit. <laughs> Met his honesty. You know, and it was really interesting because in his family, you're not supposed to say shit, right? So here I am, like, I know my niece is going to be really upset if he says, Annie Michelle, were you going to say the word shit? But it was true. I, well, I didn't get the T out, but I was like, shh, you know, and then, so, okay, I admitted it. We start the game in again, and we're going along, and I'm really trying to restrain myself, you know, I'm like going along, and finally something happens, and I go, <laughs> And he goes, he stops the game. He goes, Annie Michelle, were you going to say the word damn? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was going to say the word damn. <laughs> we did that for a number of times. And I have to tell you, him and I connected. Like, somehow, it was really weird, but this is how we connected. You know, he was so happy. <laughs> that I was imperfect. And in the, it's weird, but in the family structure, it's like you're not, you know, the, he's been raised where you're not supposed to get that frustrated and say that. But somehow it released something in him that was just giggly and happy and wonderful. And, you know, who knows? Life is a mystery, right? You know, how do we understand these things? But we've been really close ever since. You know, that it broke a barrier, and it was around me being willing to say, yeah, yeah, I was really frustrated, and I said the word shit, you know. And that, you know, it depends on your background, but it was, you know, it was really, it's just really interesting to me what is it that allows for a connection to happen. And mostly what I've learned with a loving-kindness practice is that really when we learn it and can actualize it sometimes. We give the gift of fearlessness to ourselves and others because there's such a deep acceptance, you know, just such an utter deep acceptance. And one of the places that I wanted to share that with you in terms of just IMS is that over the years, I first came on staff here in 78 and I came on a work retreat in 1977. And I've lived here a lot. I've In teaching, I lived in the building for years before moving out as a teacher. And a, a lot of my possessions are all over the place. Like when you walk through a hallway or there's a, a shell that my aunt, the, one of my only, th- it, the only thing I have from one of my aunts is in the office downstairs. There's a shell there. It was there. And one time when Joseph first moved into his house, when he, you know, that great day when he moved in, I went in the bathroom and there was a vase of mine that came from an old friend. Um, and what happens here is that if you leave stuff around, it never goes away. No one will take it. It's just such an amazing place. You know, it's like just on that level of, of metta and fearlessness, it's like if you leave anything here, somehow it gets to stay. You know, and we, I take it for granted here, but it, it's not like that in the rest of the world. You know, you, know my, you might think you left your cell phone somewhere or your pocketbook or whatever. It's like you get that feeling like, oh, no, right? 
And so that quality of fearlessness is, is part of what we're developing here. And there's so many levels to it, whether it's something, you know, that we have. You know, when I first walked into Joseph's bathroom, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's my face. And then it was like, great, wow, it's not lost. And I don't think of it, as, well, it's that house or this place, or I'll walk through a hallway and I'll see something. And now for me, it's just like, oh, it's my spiritual home. So there's, you know, when you do this practice the first few days, it can feel like, what does this have to do with anything? You know, just just surrendering to it and and saying the phrases or getting into the feeling essence and or just being quiet with it. But really, I feel like it it's so important what we're doing, you know, and it really just takes that ability to to be willing to be imperfect. And love yourself for it and do the best you can. So let's sit a minute. May we give ourselves and others the gift of fearlessness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.